Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me for this episode as we're going to be speaking with Jeanette Kioi Perkinson. And as usual, we find out all about our guests' life and their backgrounds and what it is that's led them to do what they do today. In this case, an initiative that Jeanette has started called PowerPause, which is really focused on education about menopause which is a subject that I didn't know much about, but I'm so glad that I had the conversation because I felt like I learned a lot, and I'm sure you will as well. If you do, then consider sharing this with somebody else who might find it helpful. And don't forget, there's more than 230 other episodes in the back catalog, and you can find out more at theseeds.nz. Now let's get straight into this conversation with Jeanette. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Jeanette Kioi Perkinson, who's the founder of Agile People and PowerPause. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for uh, allowing me to join you, Stephen. It's great to be here. Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to our conversation because it's going to touch on topics that I don't know that much about, which is always part of the reason I do the podcast, actually, is that every week I want people to be listening and learning something that they is completely different to the week before and um, that maybe they can then be informed to go out and have helpful conversations in the community. But before we talk about those things that you're involved in, particularly PowerPause, um, I'd love to go back in time with people. And I know you're a listener of the show, so you've heard me say this before, but I'd love to hear a little bit about what your life was like when you were, say, four or five years old. Where were you living and what was that like? So I was born in Liverpool in England, um, and it's very, very close to my heart. As a city, it's just my favorite place in the world. Um, and I grew up with in a family, um, very loving family. So my my mum and dad were working class. Uh, my dad worked three shifts in a factory, um, early's late nights, early's late nights. Um, just worked very hard, but was tremendously kind and involved in lots of things in the community to help others. And my mum the same. So she was a school nurse. You know, we didn't have. We didn't know that we were poor, but we realize now when you look back, we were poor. Uh, we didn't really have um, a lot to spare, but we always had a lot of love. And, you know, it, it was, it was, I mean, it was a, a lovely, a lovely place to, to grow up. Um, and what do you think it, it shaped them, your parents, I mean, like, what was it that caused them to be that way? They just, they always had, I mean, they, they were both from Irish background. So my Keogh of my name um, is Irish from Wexford. And my mum and dad's parents were Irish. They came from Ireland to Liverpool. Liverpool is often called the second Irish capital. So they came and started life in Liverpool and they were very, very poor. So they, you know, my mum's family, they just, they, they never owned a house. They, they were, uh, you know, rented and, got moved about from, as she says, from pillar to post, always moving around. And so I think they, it builds a lot of empathy when, when you have it tough and you see other people having it tough and everybody lumped in together and, you know, always try to help each other. So I think that's where it just came from not, not having very much and always helping each other in a community. I find it interesting to think about generations and what we take for granted today and go back, say, 100 years and the circumstances that probably your great-grandparents, my great-grandparents, that was sort of normal, you know, that it would be so different. Because I know I've got Norwegian heritage 
and they left Norway in 1910, when Norway at the time didn't have as much as they do in terms of oil reserves and all that. And I think they left for a better life in America because it was literally so poor and impoverished where they were. But we kind of forget that sometimes. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think also my parents, um, my dad was 10 years older than my mum. So he actually went away and fought in the Second World War. Um, And my mum, she was six when it started. So she's 1933. And, um, and so, you know, she was in Liverpool when it was being bombed. She was, she lived through the Blitz. And, and that, that changes you as well, because I think people really, really um, did gang together and really did support each other. And really, there was such a massive sense of community then and such a gratitude for people that had kept us free. Um, so just sort of gone to, to fight in the war. Many of them didn't come back. And my, my father did, thankfully, because um, he went when he was 18. Um, but he was, you know, but, but it always affected him for years. Like he never talked about it, but he would have bad dreams and he would, you know, it, it did affect him. Um, I think mentally it affected him, but he always kept that sort of away from us. Mm. Um, and these are very, very, just very kind people, mm. lovely, kind people. Do you think he was trying to shelter you a little bit from his experience that you wouldn't have to go through what he had seen? And For sure. For sure. I think they saw some horrible things. He was in Burma and so not sort of in the Europe. Yeah. In the heart of Europe with the, that horrible situation, but still seeing a lot of horrible things and, mm. and it's traumatic. And, you know, we didn't then know about post-traumatic stress disorder or nobody was helped when they came back. Mm. Um, it was just, all right, get on with it. So he did, I think he did sort of shield us from it occasionally. You know, when I got older, I would ask him about it, but he would just say, oh, uh, it was, you know, something we had to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, I think good, kind people have, have a problem being in a situation where they're, they're at war and they have to defend and, and do things they don't want to do. Um, so it's, it was, I think it was tough for him, but yeah, he, He certainly protected us from it. And turning our attention to you at sort of that young age, primary school, you know, what sort of things did you enjoy doing? So I was all about sport. Um, And, you know, people that know me now, and I I don't look that sporty now anymore, but but I was all about sport. My whole day, my life was sport. So in primary school, I was netball and hockey and rounders and what was – Round, round us like softball mm. um and just just at, and running um athletics so every season i was involved in i was in the teams in my school teams um and i was a prefect and then i was head girl in my primary school in my in my junior school um and then so i always wanted to be involved and doing stuff with other people and and then i when i went to um high school Again, followed through on sports. So I was in the team, um, the school team for hockey, netball, uh, indoor hockey, um, field hockey, and uh, and then again athletics all through summer. So um, and that that then defined my choice of university because I just wanted to continue to do sport. It really, I mean, now I mean I'm a huge sports fan, but 
you know, I'm limited more to, to Pilates and cycling now. <laughs> so how did that inform you in terms of where you went on to do further study? Or was it a given that you would do some sort of higher education or was it or not? Well, um, nobody in my family had ever been to, um, except for one cousin had ever been to university. And so I guess it was it wasn't expected, but I was I was driven I was just really driven to do it. I wanted to go to university. I wanted to um, to get a degree and, and I worked really, really hard. And, you know, I've always had this this view of if you work hard, well, good things happen when you work hard. And, and my parents had a really high work ethic. So um, so I just worked really, really hard and I, and I never questioned. I just always thought I would go to university. The, the university I wanted to go to was... Uh, was Loughborough because it was Loughborough University of Technology in the UK, which was an engineering kind of technology university, but it was it was known to be the sports university. So, um, so I was very lucky, you know, I managed to get a place at Loughborough. That was that was my dream. It's interesting what you say about the hard work, isn't it? Because I I think there's there'll be many quotes about this, but you know, good luck happens to those who work hard. That type of thing, right? Like. It, it's it's not just luck though it's that setting the foundation to enable those things to happen for sure for sure and i think um i think there's a the the semblance there's the luck there's the very there's a work hard but there's also the being open to opportunities as they arise of being present when somebody you know when somebody puts an opportunity in front of you always thinking hmm yeah should i yeah maybe maybe it's a yes it's really true, isn't it? Because how many times have people, probably hundreds and hundreds of times, people are told about something, but it's the the eyes to see the opportunity or the potential. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's, just, it's a hunger thing, isn't it? It's a, it's a passion and a hunger and a curiosity. Mm. I think um, curiosity is a really key thing uh, mm. to, to, to create luck and to create opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. It's a word that I use a lot on the podcast. And the reason I often phrase my sentences or questions will be, I'm just curious. And then I'll say mm-hmm. the question because I'm trying to model that for the people listening that if, I mean, it goes without saying in some ways, but hearing somebody say, I'm just curious, hopefully is a pattern that people listening will take into their lives as well. Oh, it's such a massive life skill, curiosity, I think just always wondering why and and what could what could be what could happen if we do this and if I tried that so I think um, and there's a life skill you know in in my kind of core day job I've always looked for to hire people with curiosity yeah that's good how do you tell if somebody's curious like have you can you easily pick it up yeah I think just by the, the the things that they've done in life and the things and the questions that they ask you know when people are prepared with and so if I go into so the type of HR job that I've had for many years in an interview, having a conversation about someone's life and very much the way that we're doing now. And mm. um, you're going to find out if people are curious or not, what they've explored, what they've thrown themselves into, um, you know, how, how far out of the comfort zone that they have been willing to go. Uh, yes. Yeah, so it's, I think it's, it's fairly easy to, to spot. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. And I, I notice as well when people go on an overseas experience or an OE, that often that's quite a formative thing at an early age, at say 17, 18, 19 or something, to go to a new culture, to live or experience somewhere else 
I think it then sets you up for the rest of your life in some ways. Um, and it's quite interesting to think of, you know, I've got children, as we were talking about before we started recording, thinking for them as a parent, I might feel a bit protective, like, oh, I'm not sure if you should go off to this other place. But actually, in my own life, I lived in Japan for a year when I was quite young. And I think it did change the direction of how I think about the world. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I went to America when I was 18. So I took a gap year. So I got my place at university and then I deferred it for a year because again, just out of the blue, I was in a cafe in Liverpool with my friend and we were sat next to a, a group of girls on a tour from America. Hmm. And the, the people that were with the girls, the teachers that were with the girls, we got talking to them, had a, you know, having a great time, having a laugh. And they said, oh, have you ever thought about being a nanny in America, going to America and, and doing au pairing? <laughs> and I had my place already at university. I said, well, I'm going to go to university. And so, well, well, you know, if you, if you are interested. And I then we started talking to each other, my friend and I, and said, well, why not? Why don't we do this? We'd switched addresses, and then we didn't have all of the mobile phones and the instant emails and WhatsApp and all of that. It was, it was letters. And, but we switched addresses. They wrote to us, and I wrote back and said, yeah, you know what, I would be interested. And had a phone call from someone that lived in Alexandria, Virginia, a lovely, lovely woman. We're still in touch now. We're still friends. But I went to be a nanny for them for um, – I went to America for a year, and I was a nanny for them on the East Coast for eight months, and then San Francisco for, for six months, so it was 14 months, and then started university back in the U.K., Huh. But it was such an incredibly formative experience. Um, and it actually informed when I was going to have children, if I had children, that I wasn't going to have children immediately because I knew the work that was entailed and the responsibility of it. So I knew I loved children, but I had five of them <laughs> um, in my au pair job. And, um, and so I just knew what it, what it took and and I thought, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure I have um, have some time, and I'm ready before I throw myself into children. And thankfully, children happened for me. But that formative experience meant they happened later in life. Hmm. That's really fascinating. I already love our conversation because I love those unexpected twists. Um, can you take us back to that cafe and that moment that then has influenced so much of your life? Um, do you remember that? You know, like, what was it that started the conversation with the people you were sitting next by? Have you reflected on that? Like, how did that well, come about? Oh, uh, I'm just a raging extrovert. So I always start up conversations with people. So whether I'm on a bus or a train or a plane or I'm, I'm the one you don't want to sit next to. <laughs> I'm going to go, hello, I'm Jeanette, how are you? Um, and, you know, I just think people are fascinating and I always, I just truly believe you're going to learn something from every single person that you meet. Mm. Um, and it, it's just phenomenal. If somebody doesn't want to talk, that's okay. But if they want to talk, everyone's got such a great story. Mm. And I think, you know, you, again, and you dig into it, you find so much that, that so many incredible things about people. And people themselves don't think they're very interesting, a lot of them, but they are fascinating. Mm. So I've always just loved that people, the energy that you get from talking to other people. And whenever I'm in a restaurant, I, I almost always, if it's close table, you know, if, if, a, if your friend, if you're in a real conversation with your friend where it's, um, you know, you're, you're full on, you might not get the opportunity. But as soon as your friend goes to the, the restrooms, I'm kind of, oh, hello. <laughs> 
Um, and, and especially if it's a group of people that are having a laugh, I'll say, oh, where are you from? What's that accent? I speak to waitresses and, and um, maitre d's. In fact, one of my hiring techniques is to take people to, um, to a cafe. Um, if I'm hiring a senior executive, you know, if you take, go for lunch or, or a coffee, I want to see how they treat the person that opens the door, the person, the maitre d' that seats us at the table, how they treat the waiters, because that's going to tell me, are they going to be a good leader? Mm. And are they going to treat their people properly? Mm. Um, you know, basics of kind of thank you, please and thank you, and um, recognizing people as a person, not just looking through them. Mm. Um, I, that's, that's really key for me. So I just thought, I'm just really interested in people. And when they're in a group, it's fun. And when you hear another accent, you know, I always ask waiters and waitresses, where are they from? And they go, oh, really? Do you miss your parents? And, and, and you just get these incredible stories. So it's phenomenal. Mm. That's really interesting. I like that approach as well of not just looking at a CV or a cover letter or something, but actually going out into the real world with someone and seeing how they interact, not in a, um, you know, simulated way it's actual real life right so that's really interesting and i love what you're saying as well because if you go back and listen to episode one of the podcast uh, of seeds um, i share a story about my mother and how she told me that if you meet someone and they're not interesting then it's your fault you haven't asked the right questions yet because everyone has a story. And that's actually been one of the trademarks of this podcast because it, it, it interviews such variety and different people that every week it's someone so different to the week before. Sometimes people say, what's, what is it that cuts across all of it? And for me, it's all about life journeys and stories and how interesting they are. And then about purpose and why people do what they do. So I really understand what you're saying. Oh, yeah, I will go back and um, listen to that one. Mm. Yeah, well, I think uh, I'm going to plant a seed, which is you should probably start a podcast yourself because, (laughs) you know, you're probably meeting amazing people, particularly around the topic that we're coming to. And, um, you know, having curiosity and then recording conversations and stories is such a great way to spread messages in a very easy way that people can download a whole life in a short time. So, yeah, that's good. I think you've got a particular skill at it, Stephen. I think it's, um, you know, I think what you managed to draw out is amazing. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Well, thank you for the compliment. Um, so coming back to going to America then, um, had America been on your radar before then? You know, like you're, you're 18 years old and off to the States. What was that like? Oh, no, not at all, actually. Um, I mean, I always looked at it as a, it seemed like a really cool place to go. Um, but we never had the money. I mean, we, I'd never actually... I, I hadn't traveled abroad. I'd not been on an airplane <laughs> to, to fly out of the UK before that. So um, we, we just couldn't afford that. So they, you know, when someone offered to pay a ticket to America for me, it was, it was like all my dreams had come true and I'd won the lottery. Right. Um, just to get a, a, a ticket, a flight. Um, and I had no money to go with. So, you know, it was a case of, and I was working and um, Iceland frozen foods, that's a circular thing that came back again when I was much, much older and went to, to work with them as, a, as an interim director. Um, but when I was 17, 16, 17, I was working every Friday night and Saturday in, in, a, in the store called Iceland, which was freezer frozen foods. 
Um, so the store was full of freezers and, you know, you used to pack your frozen foods into the, and then talk to people by the checkouts. And, and that's how I, how I saved enough money to have a, a little bit of spending money that I wasn't, you know, if, if it turned out to be axe murderers at the end of the flight, um, that I could, you know, escape with my, what I thought was a huge amount of money then, which was $200 that I'd saved up over the, <laughs> over the time. Um, but yeah, it, 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 yeah, just to answer your question, not on my radar, an opportunity arose. It, it just seemed exciting. I'd been offered a job um, for the summer in, um, in one of the holiday camps in the UK, in, in a Pontins holiday camp. I'd gone for an audition and I'd gone on stage and sung a song and they offered me a job. And it was a real way up at that point of, do I go and do that or do I? And I would have followed, if I'd done that, I'd, I'd have followed such a different track um, down an entertainment route. But I went to America and followed a, you know, a very different track, uh, which is the track I followed. Yeah. So thinking about yourself arriving in America as an 18-year-old and then yourself leaving America, what was it that had really shaped you or, or changed you in terms of your character or the, or the way that you were? Wow. Um, that's a big question. <laughs> um, First of all, the family that I was au-pairing for were just the most incredibly wonderful, kind people. Um, he, Peter, was a lawyer uh, in Washington, D.C., and and Carol was a um, teacher, but yeah, a part-time teacher with having five children. So the baby was born two weeks after I got there. Um, and I learned everything about I didn't know how to change a diaper nappy. Um, so I learned everything from her. She was patient, just unbelievably patient with the children and kind. And, you know, everything was, everything was done by reasoning um, and talking and um, having a really intelligent conversation with little kids about why you should or shouldn't do something. Um, never raised a voice. Uh, you know, just, just a wonderful example of how to parent children. Um, so I learned a huge amount from her uh, and him and the joy that those children had, you know, when mum and dad were about was phenomenal. The other thing I learned, though, was I had the, the two year old um, was uh, was with me most of the time because I was a new baby and the older kids went to school. Um, but the two year old with me got to such a point where people would say, um, how old's your daughter? We'd be out at the park and they'd say, how old's your daughter? And I'd say, oh, she's not my daughter. But one day she actually called me mummy. And I was horrified and I just said, I'm not your mummy. I'm, I'm Jeanette, I'm not your mummy. Um, and that one moment, and I went back and told Carol, I said, look, you know, this happened, but I've made sure she knows the difference and she had two. Um, but I went, you know, that, that was such a formative moment in my life of, I don't, I didn't ever want to have a nanny or an au pair because <laughs> I didn't ever want my child to call somebody else mommy, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, probably foolish because it doesn't always happen and probably foolish because it's a moment in time. Um, but it did inform when we had children and um, that I know we never wanted to have. And I, and I, abs- I was an au pair, so I absolutely agree people should have help. Um, and can can you know live their lives as they want to live their lives and au pairs are fantastic um 
but I didn't want to have one. So what that informed was we always had my husband be a stay at home dad, um, which has been, you know, so we haven't had two incomes. We've, um, I've probably worked yeah, yeah, extremely hard to, um, yeah, to ensure that we could continue to do that. And, uh, but, but my husband Duncan was a stay at home dad for, you know, 14 years. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that that worked for us, mm. but it meant some you know some sacrifices. But it was at a time when it wasn't the norm. It's it, it's quite common now. Mm. Well, I'd love to find out a bit more about that. So maybe take us through um, coming back from America, and then yeah, what happened next? You you went back to where you so were going to be studying, and yeah, started university at Loughborough. Um, had a whale of a time. Um, I was voted fresher of the year. I was such a, I was such a party animal. Um, that was just crazy. Um, but it was really fun. And then I went back to America and did work America program in the summer because I'd missed, I missed all the friends I've made in America. We drove across America. My sister came out, um, and my best friend and we drove across America at the end of my year. Um, we actually did 5,000 miles. It should have been about just over 3000, but we did a wiggly, a wiggly course mm-hmm. um, in a tiny little car um, that someone needed to be delivered from the West Coast to the East Coast. So we, we'd done that. And I, we made so many friends along the way, plus my family that I'd worked with. Um, so we went back, I went back for Work America and then had a really formative, again, really life-changing experience that summer um, where the job that I applied for um, because it was a work permit. It wasn't a Camp America program. I had a work permit. I could have worked anywhere. But I actually applied for a job on a camp for handicapped children. And that's what it was called at the moment. It was called um, Camp for Handicapped Children. The language is different now. Um, but I went and got a job as a counsellor, camp counsellor. Um, and and that, that literally changed my life, that job. It really did. It changed the way I saw things. It changed it changed everything for me. I, I working with children who have um, learning difficulties, physical difficulties, with cerebral palsy, and muscular dystrophy, and sickle cell anemia, all sorts of of different types of um, issues, and yet they were all so happy, so full of joy, so full of fun. Absolutely loved being there. Um, it was it was it was a thing that um, that gave their parents a rest uh, for three weeks while you know they could go off on on vacation and take a break and and know that their children were safe. But while I was there, I just met the most incredible children, and and one that really changed my life was a girl who was sixteen. So I was working in a cabin with um, with older girls, um, and you know they would they couldn't do things that lots of them in wheelchairs, cerebral, lots of cerebral palsy and lots of muscular dystrophy. And, you know, girls that couldn't go to the toilet by themselves needed help to do things like that. But they were just fantastic people. And this one girl who was the life and soul of the party and every, every night you had a campfire and she was, you know, the leader and she would, she would lead the songs and lead everybody. Fantastic girl. And at the end of camp, I said to her, Oh, um, can't wait to see you again next year. And she said, oh, no, I won't be here next year. I said, why not? Where are you going next year? Are you going off to Europe or something? And she said, oh, no, I'll be dead by next year. And 
in it. Uh, uh, what? And I just said, oh, okay. Well, that's, you know, what? Very brave of you to say it like that. You don't know, I've known, you know, I haven't long to live and I just need to make the most of it. Mm. Um, it's fine. And honestly, out she went. When her parents, her parents came and collected her and I went, I went off into the back and burst, <laughs> burst into tears. Oh, but it really, you know, it really taught me just to make the most of every day. This carpe diem is it just, you don't know when you're going to die. Um, just be joyful and do your best and try and try and create joy and try and spread joy. Mm. Well, I can tell that she would have had a massive impact because uh, I think that changes your framing of your own life, doesn't it? If you meet people who have a limited amount of time left and yet are joyful, are able to enjoy, you know, each day. That's really, yeah, amazing. And be grateful for, you know, the limited time that they have had on the planet. It's, mm. it's phenomenal. So, of course, I went back to university to my second year, and I had zero tolerance for anyone who complained of a headache or <laughs> any, anything else. <laughs> I just, um, I said, God, you know what? You're alive. You've got your limbs. You've got... Puts it into perspective, doesn't it? I, something that has stuck with me recently has been, um, I, and I've been guilty of this in the past too, you know, making jokes about birthdays, like, oh, I'm, I'm actually 21, I'm 21 again or whatever. But actually just thinking through what a privilege it is to be able to get older, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, and it's a privilege denied to many. And I think that's helped to frame my own feelings about my life, you know, like, when you're in your 40s, when you're 50s, 60s, you know, the fact that you've lived that long is something that so many people like this person you're talking about would have given anything to have that amount of time and and yet it was taken from them. And I think it just, it definitely gives you that perspective on life, doesn't it? And yeah. I'm getting tears in my eyes as I'm thinking of people that I know who are no longer with us, who... Mm-hmm you know, you just can't take things for granted, can you? No, for sure, for sure. Mm. It is a gift. I always say to my children, life is just a real gift. It's a roller coaster. Mm. You're going to have the really hard times that you think you can't get out of, but it's, you know, you get through that, you recognize it's going to happen, you recognize you're going to have those times and you, rec- and, and, and you just have to apply yourself to getting, to getting over and into better times and, and enjoying the ride. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So you're in your second year, you're coming, sort of getting to the end of your degree. Did you know what you wanted to do? Was sports still your main thing or had it started to shift given all these different influences? Sports was still my main thing. You know, I was still really, uh, really into that. But I was, you know, then partying like crazy. So, um, of course, boys became a, a thing, a really big thing. And, <laughs> um, and, and I was, I was, I actually went to the careers office in the university and they, they did one of those little assessment tests and they said, you need to be a lawyer or, um, or hey, have you thought about HR? You're a people person. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, you know, I'm very much about fairness and, and um, helping people defend people, but I wasn't, I wasn't a nurse type of person. Um, but they, they, they put me onto the track of HR and I started to research. I didn't really know much about that called personnel at the time. Um, and then, but I thought, God, that's actually pretty cool. Cause it, 
it helped it would enable me to to do what I like doing which is um well, it sounds like you knew you liked people and and finding out about lives and you know all that type of thing yeah it was how can you yeah the thing that I loved was how can you create um people programs that enable people to love what they do and make a difference um so how can they be productive how can people you know how can you get the right people into jobs how can you create the right sort of organization so I loved all the organization design and the strategy of the people strategy piece which is this organization wants to be in 25 countries by next year um you know how do we do that how do we design a strategy to enable that how do we drive um you know how do we recruit people to do that how do we how do we identify what jobs are, are necessary and what, what needs to be delivered in order to to get to that goal i love that mm. um so for me it was just a real sweet spot to go into hr and i researched a few companies that i thought were cool and I knew I wanted to travel. I knew from being in America um, and going back to America. Um, and I went back again the th after my second year. So that was sort of three visits to America by the time I was 21. Um, and I, I knew I wanted something that enabled me to, to travel globally. Um, so I, I applied to five global businesses, um, had interviews with all of them, had assessment centers, and but my 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 absolute favorite was ford motor company and i uh, was lucky enough to get through their assessment center and be offered a job on well be offered a role on their graduate management program so you know just i thought i died and gone to heaven when that happened and um it was an amazing company and just fantastic actually and gave me so much opportunity um, and after you've been in Ford for about five years in the UK, you get headhunted. <laughs> so that's what happened. And then Cargill, which is another huge um, US company, you know, they've got a, about 130 billion turnover, um, massive commodities company. Um, they they uh, contacted me and said, we'd like you to come and join us. We've just bought a business in the UK and we'd like you to come and join us. Um, and they just got, the most incredible values. So, you know, I learned a huge amount, like boot camp. Food Ford was like boot camp of how to do things really well. And big companies can can spend money on great process and taking out inefficiencies and really spending money on learning and development and that sort of thing. Um, and Cargill the same, you know, a US company that that would spend money on people's development and and they enabled me to um, to do a European job to to then go to Russia and to be in Moscow and live in, live in Russia for a couple of years and then go to America um, and, and be an executive in America. So it's just an incredible experience. I've been really, really lucky. That's amazing. And, and all the time that was with human resources or looking after people. Mm -hmm. And what yeah. have you learned in that role? You know, just thinking, yeah, this is a very open question. So, you know, dealing with people, doing interviews, trying to work out where the fit will be. Does this person suit this job? Would they be better over here? Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about what you've learned about people. And um, I'm actually curious, like, how you go about when you first meet somebody, how much can you tell about them from those initial impressions? I think everybody gets into this um, making a 
making a decision in the first 30 seconds and this minute and whatever you are, I, I think you've got to give it more you've got to give it more time and dig into what what motivates people so the big thing for me is trying to find out a, a person's motivation for sitting in front of you um and talking about this role that you're talking about mm-hmm. um and if it's not a role i mean i do a lot of pipeline interviews just talent pipeline interviews where i think someone's really interesting and i want to talk to them i haven't got a job for them yet but if they're amazing, then we might create a job um, or we'll certainly think about them for something in the future that comes up. They'd be the first people to call. So I think it's really about people's intrinsic motivation. Um, and if someone's sitting there and they just desperately need a job because they need money, it's not, it's a, it's a motivation for sure, but it's generally not the thing that's going to help them flourish in the role. Mm. Um, you've really got to look at the match and you know look at the what does this company really what is it really like to work in this in this business and is this person really going to flourish Mm. Um, you know if it's a business like financial services or something that's 24 or a tech startup it's 24 7 it's full-on gives you a huge amount of freedom to um, to go play and create but it's full-on and your, you know, your work-life harmony um, is is somewhat tilted, but but some people love that because they're just getting so much out of it, cerebrally, um, intellectually. Then, but you've got it. You've got to be honest about, um, you know. And there's a business I'm working with um, called PH Creative, uh, and they talk about the give and get of employer branding, and you've got to be honest about the give and get. And you know, we 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 would expect, we want this person and this. You know, this, we want this fantastic person to come and join us. Um, the environment, we're going to say it's fantastic, but actually would they fit into it if, it if it doesn't suit them, if the culture's very different from what they might have expected? Um, and it's not just about, oh, we've hired the role, check. It's about how, how will they thrive? Um, are they going to fit in with the rest of the team? Um, so, so for me, it is really all about that motivation. Mm. Uh, and, it, and it kind of comes back to what you said before. It's a holistic view of the person, really, because, you know, taking them to a restaurant to see how they interact with other people, like that's a, that's a, a lot deeper than just saying, well, I see your transcript here and this is the grades that you got and things. What questions do you ask people to get at that intrinsic value and, and what it is that motivates them? Well, it's, it's funny because I, do, I don't, I mean, I've learned, I've learned from being interviewed by so many amazing people and people that I've just then gone to work for because they inspired me. Um, and I'm very much into going to work for people because I believe in them and their, their vision um, rather than the company itself. It, I, I think, well, if this person loves it so much, well, I want to be part of that. Mm. So I think there's a, it's a very much a two-way street. People have to feel your, your energy and your love for it um, and the reason why on earth they should join you. But, but the, you know, you've got, I think, the types of questions, I, I never, ever have a CV in front of me on a table or, you know, in, in the meeting. I mean, I think the greatest of respect has to be that you have researched that you, as an interviewer, you have researched that person, that you have been through the CV, that you know about the person enough to be able to talk about them and refer to the CV 
but it's not in front of you and you're not going to take me through your life, take me through your CV. Mm. Um, that's just a waste of time. You should have already, you should have already done that research. What you should be doing in my view in an interview, when you meet somebody, best use of time is to have a conversation about the things that you want to dig into. Um, where, you know, so I will research and I'll look, I'll Google people and I'll look at, uh, did they have an article published somewhere? Did they, have they appeared somewhere? Have they done a speech? What, 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 um, what do they love doing? And then I'll talk about that. And I'll talk about, well, in that role, you said you, you delivered such a thing. How did you do that? Um, and I, I'm coming prepared. So I have, you know, my iPad, I have it. I have the interview all prepared with questions that I want to ask them based on the research I've done about them. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, that all takes a lot, a lot of time. I think that's the respect that you've got to afford to somebody mm. when they've, you know, respected and, and, and taken time to apply mm. um, and got that far. So it's more about a conversation and thinking about who you're going to be working with um and you know so sometimes i'll I'll ask questions like uh, i know there's somebody that's particularly challenging in the team and i'll go how would you deal with somebody that acts like this or have you have you had that situation play out before what did you do there's more situational um how have you behaved type questions Mm -hmm. and what have you delivered yeah and it's it's grounding it in the reality of real life right you know like tell us about a problem you faced and how you overcame it or describe a time when things didn't go the way you'd thought that they would and how did you overcome it? And yeah, that's really good. Well, I'd love to turn the conversation a little bit into what you're doing today. Um, And in particular, um, well, we can go any direction you want, but you were obviously in Europe a long time and now you're in New Zealand. So maybe just describe how you ended up here. Yes, so we, we spent four years in, in Amsterdam um, in a global role. Uh, and then we spent another four years back in the UK in, a, in another global role where we were globalising a private equity business of so, you know, phenomenally um, exciting and successfully sold that business, which was the plan. I had, we had planned to come to New Zealand a little bit earlier than we did, um, but because the sale of the business was, um, we were selling the business in the UK. Um, my chief executive there had wanted me to stay there. So I was offered a job here, um, which I, I couldn't accept at the time, but it's, it's actually led to another role here, which I'm going to be um, a directorship that I'm taking on in February. Um, but anyway, and I digress. Um, we, we had said, I promised my husband that we'd come back to New Zealand before our son started um, high school. And the start for high school for him to go into year nine was going to be uh, February, 1st of February or uh, 2018. So we, we scraped in, in December 17, <laughs> just made it. Um, and we had a wonderful summer of being on the beach. It was a phenomenal summer, that, that, that Christmas of 17 into 18. Um, did a lot of exploring in New Zealand, having a great time. And um, and so that's how we that's how we ended up here. Uh, he started high school. My daughter started in primary school, and and the rest is history. Mm. And so, tell me a little bit um, about Power Pause. I'd I'd love to learn more. Where did, where did that come from? In terms of um, how did that get started? And and yeah, what tell us a bit about it. Um, 
well it was very it was never on the cards it was never ever something that ever occurred to me that I would be doing um <laughs> and uh and it, it it took a while to ferment um but I found that when I came to New Zealand the first job that I um I was offered a before I came here I was um an HR director had said to me uh, I've got a job for you when you get here which was lovely and of course as soon as I rang him he said right come on in uh, and help us in Sparks that was Joe McCollum he he asked me to come in and be the head of Agile Academy and that was a role that didn't exist and it was something about creating it's all about creating the Agile Academy so hiring Agile coaches um, doing learning development programs designing learning and development programs and running them for all of the key roles in an agile team. So the chapter leads and product owners, tribe leads, and so on. So that was a huge amount of fun, um, full on, you know, really, really full on role. I loved it, absolutely loved it. And um, it was a contract. Uh, so we signed up originally for four months. They asked me to stay longer, but in that period of time, and I stayed for five months, they asked me to stay longer. But, um, but in that period of time, I was approached by a big bank here to be on their executive team. And that was kind of the role that, that, I, that I wanted. I wanted to be back on, on an executive team. What had happened in between was I'd had HRT, hormone replacement therapy, um, you know, my age. I knew I was having perimenopausal symptoms in the UK, but I was only having night sweats. And there are 34 symptoms of menopause, uh, most of which I wasn't aware of. Um, I was having night sweats and um, and a friend of mine had said, oh, you must be going into perimenopause. And the doctor said, yeah, you're about the age. Um, and I went on to HRT. So then I didn't have any symptoms. I was fine. And I was managing a global role and it was fine. Then I moved to New Zealand and I was managing a full on role, loved every minute and it was fine. And then I ran out of HRT. So when I moved into the bank role, I hadn't even realized the effect that now that I've had no oestrogen, I start, you know, your oestrogen declines as you get older, as, as I'm sure you know. Um, and, you know, when, when you stop producing eggs and you, you're in a perimenopause phase, which can last, you know, eight, it can four, eight, ten years. Um, and a lot of people have a really, really terrible time through it. So as your oestrogen declines and you stop releasing eggs, you stop having periods, um, it's all over the place for years you have them, then you don't, and you have them, you, don't. you think you're finished, and then it comes back again, and it's all over the place. Anyway, what I didn't realize is that my hormonal situation was wreaking havoc, and I had hot flushes, so in the office every day, I was having hot flushes, and it was a joke to people, and everybody would laugh, and they'd call them power surges, and one of my team gave me a handheld fan, somebody else gave me a fan for the desk, um, and it was, and one, and my husband got me a fan to plug into the side of my laptop to, and I would be in the boardroom with a fan that was going, you know, it was, so pretty embarrassing stuff, but we just made a joke of it, but I didn't realize all of the symptoms that come with it. And I didn't, I never took time for myself and I'm very careful about those words and the accountability of it. I did not take time. I did not put myself first to go to the doctor and get HRT. Um, and what I hadn't realized is, you know, the, the night sweats were back. Uh, I hadn't realized the fatigue 
that comes from that and then the anxiety that comes from that I started to gain weight suddenly didn't know why that was happening was on, kept going on to diet and trying to figure out why I was putting on weight when I wasn't doing anything differently um, and then just finding that I had brain fog and memory loss and I couldn't think straight I'd be in the boardroom about to say something and then I'd forget what I was going to say um, and it was and I found I couldn't actually um, in, cope for the first time in my professional life and that's a very you know, I find myself saying that, thinking, oh, my God, I can't say that. But I couldn't, you know, I just couldn't deal with a job that I'd always dealt with mm. for 30 years. Um, and certainly for 20 years being executive, I've dealt with... It sounds with like there were, there were these real symptoms that were, that were coming out and manifesting. And you were, you know, probably not 100% sure exactly what was going on as well, right? Yeah, so I, you know, and I should have known. I mean, I was chief people officer. I should have known. Mm. Um, and I just think, oh, how, how stupid that I, I, of all people, I should be the person putting programs in place to help people through this and to help retain people at the top of their game. Women are at the top of their game in their, you know, late 40s, early 50s. You're, you're in that exec role. You're in the leadership roles. You're in the GM roles in business. In, in academia, you're in the professor roles or the, the top researchers in in healthcare you're a surgeon you're a you're a doctor you're a nurse you're in essential worker positions and there's an article recently in the uk in the guardian um that said the us the uk is having a terrible time national health service because so many women are leaving essential roles because of menopause that they don't feel supported and the working hours are just are just brutal for them um, through their menopause years and it's a real problem now it's got a, it's 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 got gaining a massive voice in the US and in the UK it's becoming normalized in New Zealand nobody talks well we've just started to talk about it so we're now starting to see articles and LinkedIn posts and um, people are starting to and it's going to start um, being a thing on TV um, you know Hillary Barry's just faked, done a Facebook post last week um, about having menopause. Kate Roger is is doing is making a podcast about it. So so there's it, it's starting and there will be a tsunami, but but it's been a, a trickle. Mm. It's been nothing to a trickle. And so I went through it. I had no idea because I hadn't had the symptoms because I'd had HRT. I didn't realise how bad the symptoms then were after I my oestrogen was almost gone. So I was actually in my final year of peri perimenopause all the way through that year with the bank. And while I started off like really well at the bank and was, you know, doing things, doing great things, doing a whole values refresh program, hiring executives, you know, full on. After about seven, eight months, I was kind of boom, hang on. Um, this isn't going so well. I'm struggling to write board paper, <laughs> um, struggling with time management, struggling with mood swings and, and it just, I had, I thought I would, I honestly thought I had early onset dementia. Um, and also when you, when you stop performing at that high level and you know that that's how you perform normally and you know there's something wrong, but you don't know what it is and you think you've got dementia. Um, it was just not a, not something I could continue. And I resigned and only after I'd resigned, I thought, what on earth, what on earth happened? 
so I went to the doctor and said, I've got, I think I've got a little set dementia. I've got my memories affected. I can't cope. Well, I can't report things. Um, oh, it's taking me, not that I can't, it was taking me, a, you know, much longer time. And um, so I sat and I, I sort of, in the doctor's office and just regaled all these things. And she said, it's, it's menopause. You should have, you should have come to me. I would have given you HRT. And I, isn't it, it's unsafe now at my age. Isn't it? No, no. All those myths have been debunked. It is perfectly safe and the risk and the um, benefits outweigh the risk. So, you know, I'm going to go into a bit of detail now for the audience, but I, I was given an estrogen patch and um, progesterone tablets and my life changed almost overnight, probably within a week. But my life just changed beyond recognition. I got my energy back. I got my memory back. I didn't have brain fog anymore. No sweats, no hot flushes. And literally, it worked for me just incredibly well. And, and I, I then sat there and thought, how have I quit an executive job? And people telling me, you, you know, you talk about... Um, talk about this, you'll never get another job in New Zealand. I just got, kept hearing that. Oh, people don't understand why you've left. Oh, something must have happened. Oh. Um, and, and I just thought, this can't happen to other people, surely. I, I've got to do something about it. Mm. I can't let this happen to other women. When I've spent years and years spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on programs to promote women into leadership roles, mentoring programs women in leadership programs hiring programs to bring women in all to try and get more women into leadership more women to executive roles and more women onto boards and i've done that for years and suddenly i was a dropout mm. and i'd left and and I, I this can't keep happening there's definitely a correlation i'm thinking that in this this terrible number of women on boards um and yes New Zealand has Jacinda, and yes, we have more sort of people in leadership roles that are women, but still, it's it's pretty poor, mm. um, and around the world, it's terrible. So I think I, what I think what gives the story power is that it's your story. You know that that this is something that you went through, so it's not a theoretical thing. This is actually, you know, it, this is something that affected you so directly. So and and also that it made such a difference as well to go and talk with your doctor to be given some something that altered and and all of a sudden everything changed <laughs> it's yeah it's quite remarkable well it's it, yeah i just never thought it could happen to me and then of course i look back and the signs were all there because my mother had a tough time with mm. it and i you know you just and then talking to other other people about it um there are thousands of women now that have 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 written to me, I've talked to that have on social media who have had similar thing happen. You know, they just, they just didn't realize nobody talks about it, yeah. but the taboo, the, the taboo of in the old days, women used to get locked up, <laughs> and, you know, and then they die um, when they went through menopause. And, and now our life is, you know, we're probably going to live till we're 80, 90, even hundred. Um, and women are very powerful in those years and you know 60 70 80 you know exactly you've got experience um you know what you want you know you're, you're, you're powerful mm. 
it's incredible that people still treat it as a taboo. Women fall out of the workplace and then find it difficult to get back in because then they're faced with ageism. Mm. And it's a real taboo because we're, we're missing out on the skills of so many talented women. And, and what do they do then? Anybody that is really talented um, and driven is going to start their own business um, and possibly compete with your business because you didn't give them the chance. So Power Pause is all about how do, biz, how do workplaces, not just business, not, not just professional business, um, but how do workplaces like academia, like healthcare, and all the other sectors, how do workplaces help recognize and support um, and put solutions in place to help people to retain women through what is a can be a difficult stage? Can you just talk me through? I mean, I'll admit this is outside of my comfort zone to have these conversations because I don't know much about menopause. Um, but can you just talk us through in terms of um, the the timing of when when women it, that it should be on the radar as as coming like I assume that there's research into all of this and, and yeah is there just to help our listeners bearing in mind um, yeah many of them are men as well you know I want to educate them um, to then have conversations with people uh, that are helpful so sure sure um, and just just to pick up on the men part of that if this can help the amount of divorces that happen through menopausal years. Um, you know, then this is another reason for bringing it out into normal pop, in normal conversation. It mm. really helps families, teenagers um, going through puberty, who whose mothers are going through menopause, fireworks displays at home. If you don't, if you can't have a normal conversation about it, so um, so yeah. So we, normal, um, the normal um, way of things is that women in their early to mid forties. Uh, it's usually around 44 to 52, 53. Um, average age of menopause itself is 51. Um, menopause itself is a, is a retrospective diagnosis. So if I take you first through perimenopause, so perimenopause, which a lot of people haven't heard of, that's the stage where you start, your eggs are declining, your estrogen levels are declining. Um, you, so your hormones, your progesterone, testosterone, um, yeah, so they're all being affected by the, the, the shutting down of um, your, your ovaries producing eggs. So, so the oestrogen is the real main one. And, and as that declines, oestrogen affects pretty much, it's got oestrogen receptors all over your body. So neurological, um, you have neurological symptoms, um, physical symptoms, uh, just a, a huge amount of um, things in your body are affected by by estrogen, mm. um, but that that can start about it, it can start early forties. Some people some people have premature uh, menopause and they start a lot earlier, but most people are in their mid forties, mm. and it can take you know four from four to ten years mm. um, to go through that cycle of an estrogen decline and your and your ovum stopping producing. Um, Every single woman is going to go through it. Not every woman suffers in the same way. So about, there are about over 300,000 women right now in New Zealand that will be going through perimenopause and, um, and, and the, the final stage, of, which is menopause. Once you haven't had a period for 12 months, then that date and time is menopause. So you, 
that's that's when you say I've actually had menopause um, I've stopped um, but you can't say it until after 12 months mm. um, so when you um, so through that through that that range 20% of women won't really suffer very much at all and you know some of the women I've talked to who are board members and who are executives have said oh no I kind of flew through it was fine no problem um yeah and a few little bits and bobs but no no problem and um, 80% of women have symptoms that affect them and 60% of them are debilitating so get to quit your job or want to quit your job stage um to biting somebody's head off you know having a mood swing that lasts a few minutes you can't control the estrogen at all and you might have a mood swing because your tolerance level has dropped <laughs> and you might bite someone's head off for a minute and then they think you're a horrible person and you're not you could be the kindest person in the world but one person thinks you're not very nice because you had a mood swing that hit you at work boom and that means you know in in a meeting when you're talking about succession planning and where are your high potential women that could be coming through someone might say oh we can't promote that woman she's too angry or she's moody she's emotional and you can see how the succession planning starts to be affected over an incident that's happened at work and it could have been caused by a mood swing um, it doesn't mean the person's like that all the time and also menopause it's a phase like puberty that passes so once you've gone through it then it's it's done um there may be some symptoms that that continue like some people have hot flushes um after after they've gone through menopause and the post-menopause years um but if but generally you're back you can get back to normal <laughs> and that's the thing that's not known you know that's the thing that people think Oh, right. Well, you've gone through menopause. When we couldn't employ, we certainly couldn't employ somebody after that. Um, if you're already in a job and you've kept your job, you're fine. But if you're out of the market, it's hard to get back in. Mm. It's, an, it's, it's fascinating to me as well, because I presume, as you're saying, it's, it is very individualistic. Like it will be different for every woman. You know, it's not, it's not like you can say, even the, the time range that you've said, you know, it could start here, it could start there. Like, that's a good decade almost that it could be, couldn't be. So I can see where there's, it's easy for misinformation to thrive in an environment like that, where there is a bit of uncertainty and, and your symptoms might be very different to this person's symptoms or that person. Um, yeah. What we might do as well, as well as a link to your website, we'll put some other links maybe in the show notes so people can cook through and find out more. Because part of the reason I wanted to have this conversation was to do some education so that people who are coming up to that, or like me, who are married or, or you know, have women in their life, that this can start to be a more open conversation. Great, thank you so much. I mean, that's it, that's all we need to do is to normalize it. Like mental health, um, you know, like the pride movement, you know, all of those things were taboo some years ago. And now they're normalized, they're, they're normal conversations and people you know, expect that people go through these things. Mm. I think with women, it's a really challenging subject, um, menopause and perimenopause, because women don't, even if they know they're going through it, they, 
often don't want to talk about it or admit it at work for fear of not being promoted and for fear of being the first person to be disestablished when the job cuts happen. And um, it's, it's, it's really challenging and sensitive. And so the, you know, how to bring the conversation up and to create awareness is, um, it's a tricky subject. Mm, yeah, I can tell that. And like I say, we'll put some links in the show notes if you send me anything that you found helpful. What would be your, your statement or what would you encourage women who are, say, in their early 40s and they're, it, it, well, it doesn't really matter if they're in their career or, or whatever it is that they're doing, how can they, um, what, what is it that you'd encourage them to be doing or, or preparing, I guess, at that think, point? Yes, a great Great question, Stephen. I think that you, if, if they can just be aware that this will happen at some stage and it may or may not affect them as, as, as badly as it affects some people, but if they know the symptoms, and there are lots and lots of websites out there, but there's one, a US one that's called Menopause Now. Um, yeah, they're just a huge amount, but they'll go, they'll, they'll, they, they set out all of the symptoms and how they manifest themselves. Um, and there's now sort of 34 is generally the, the thing that doctors will say, 34 to 40. Um, and just not to assume either that you're stressed and that's why you've got anxiety and a lack of confidence. Or Many people think they're stressed. Many people think they're depressed. And, you know, they go to a doctor and get antidepressants, which is just the wrong thing to give someone in menopause. Um, so it's just about educating yourself about the symptoms that, that something will happen to you, um, but you can actually deal with it. There, um, there's a company here called Menomi that um, produces in New Zealand that produces um, herbal remedies for menopause to help people through it. So, you know, if you don't want to be on HRT or can't be on HRT, um, I mean, a lot of people go into menopause because they've had surgical that they've had the hysterectomy or they've had, they've had ovaries removed be, because of cancer. Um, they've had chemotherapy for breast cancer. Um, so there are lots of ways to go into a forced menopause as well, and they can't always have HRT. Um, but then you can have herbal remedies that might help um, or how to exercise or how to eat better. Um, you know, there are lots and lots of things that all of these websites will, will give you for free. Um, just find out about it and then at least you're being you know you're being aware is being armed isn't it well that's right and that's again that's why I wanted to have the conversation so that people listening can be aware and and talk with their loved ones about it in an open way because I think it's interesting as well what you said that people might go to the doctor describing certain symptoms like anxiety or depression or whatever and maybe be prescribed something and so maybe there's an education piece there for the doctors and the health professionals as well to just step back for a minute and actually consider, you know, in that context, is this yeah, you know, it's, it's really, really tough for healthcare professionals because they get this little 10 minute slot to talk to you and, and they suddenly have to be a wizard and, and yeah. you know, figure it all out. I think if women are more aware and have the accountability, uh, which I wasn't, um, if they, if, if women are more aware and can go and say, Hey, I think it might be menopause. You've got a head start. And the poor doctor um, is trying to figure it all out um, within 10 minutes. But a friend of mine, Sarah Connor, and she has started a thing called um, menopause over martinis. 
Um, you don't have to drink martinis to, to, to go to one of these, but these are dinner events, um, you know, with six to 10 people uh, to talk about it and just to normalize the conversation. But she's passionate about getting flyers and posters up in GP surgeries because we see so much about prostate cancer and puberty and uh, lung cancer and everything else in surgeries, but you don't see much about menopause. And, and once it becomes normalized, the other thing is education. So in the UK, there's a massive lobby that was run by um, a lady called Diane Danzibrink, who has menopausematters.co.uk. And it, she managed to get the curriculum of the UK changed in all schools to, um, to have menopause on the curriculum. Again, normalized. Mm. If you imagine children growing up and just thinking, oh, yeah, that's normal, that's going to happen. Mm. And then you're not going to face the same barriers that, that you face right now in workplaces mm. um, just because people are so scared to talk about it. Yeah. So just picking up on that point, you know, it, let's say somebody's listening who is going through menopause and wants to have a conversation with their work. How would you suggest that they go about doing that? I, I'm thinking like a medium sized company, not necessarily a multinational massive company, just a you know, relatively small um, what would you be your advice for people? I think, I think that, um, <laughs> and, and the reason I've started PowerPoint is to do that workplace awareness training, lunch and learns and, 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 and awareness for managers about how to deal with this and hopefully to get some targets around retention of, of older women and more experienced women. Um, it, it's difficult to go, and I've just had somebody reach out to me and say they've tried in, mm. in an organization which is a household name in New Zealand and which should be um, should be more progressive. But somebody just reached out to me through PowerPoint and said, I've just tried to have a conversation and frankly, nobody wants to talk about it. It's, mm. it's, it's kind of icky. <gasps> Don't talk to me. Mm. Um, and I, so I think that that's a difficult one to answer because it's, it takes a lot of courage and bravery mm. and you might not get the result that you want. I think the company companies need to put things in place and be seen to be putting things in place for their people around the subject. So part of a wellbeing program or DEI, so diversity, equity, inclusion, you're never going to get equity and real inclusion if we don't address this taboo. And so the, and the equity, you know, the pay equity, the disparity between women and men, mm. we're just ne never going to get there if women keep falling out of the workplace. So it, it's a real big issue. And I think the companies have to put something in place and, um, and then it makes it safe for women to go talk to their manager about it. Um, but it is a scary topic for a lot of people to raise. Mm. Well, that's really helpful to, to at least, you know, pre-warned is pre-armed, at least people know sort of uh, the ways of, of approaching it. And I think um, for me, it's been really great to talk with you just to learn myself about this topic, but also just reflecting on all of the people that I've interviewed, because this, this will be about episode 232, and thinking of all the women that have been on the show. And I'm particularly thinking of somebody who I interviewed, who you've, I know you've listened to the episode, which was Margaret Austin, episode 208. And at the time I interviewed her, she was 88 years old. And just the enormous contribution that she is still giving yeah. to society, like she's literally on 
at least a dozen different committees and supporting this and that. And so I just, I think you're right. There's a, there's a skill set and a value. And let's be honest, most movies, there's a mentor in the movie. You know, if you think of Star Wars, you've got Yoda or Obi-Wan Kenobi, whoever it is, somebody there who's helping the next generation. Absolutely. And so to, to miss out for the reasons that we're talking about on that mentorship and, and discipleship and, you know, people being able to input to the next generation of women coming um, is just a vast, uh, well, it's a big shame, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I just, just, I think of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and I just think, you know, everybody knows her now. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of us knew her for many, many years and followed her, but just, you look at the power of those women, just incredible. And that's what we need. We need more of more equality across those types of leadership roles. Yeah. Well, Jeanette, thank you so much for your time. We've talked a lot about this topic and I think I've really enjoyed it because I've learned so much myself and I'm sure that our listeners have learned a lot as well. And just a reminder, we'll put in the show notes, maybe send me some links to different things and we'll drop those in. Um, but thank you for what you're doing um, with PowerPause. And, you know, um, it'll be interesting to watch and see how this space develops and if it can become something that is more normalized and just talked about as a part of our life. Um, but just hearing your story, I actually really resonated with you about the person at the camp that that's shared with you they weren't going to be there the next year. And mm -hmm. um, I think that to me um, is in a way, it's a different type of echo, but it's an echo of what we're talking about here, which is the contribution that each of us has to give through our whole lives. Um, and so, yeah, I'll, I'll finish up there, but thank you so much um, for coming on the show. Any last words there? <laughs> thank you. No, it, was just, it, just, it just triggered me, you know, having the courage to put you, to get over yourself and just go do what you think is right to help other people mm. um, is, it's a big deal. Mm. So yeah. thank you for enabling me to, um, to tell this story. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being such an incredible uh, interviewer <laughs> and conversationalist. So thank you, Stephen. No worries. Thank you. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jeanette. I know for me, there were several highlights. And as you could tell, I was learning as I was listening. It's amazing that a topic like this, which literally affects half of the population, isn't something that we really talk about in the mainstream. And I do hope that conversations like this help to change that. Because clearly, as you could tell from the story that Jeanette was telling, there is actually a lot of resources out there and a lot of tools in the form of websites and information. So I do encourage you to check out the website, which is in the show notes, where there's heaps and heaps of links to different things that you might find helpful. And if you enjoyed this or were challenged by it or learned something new, then consider if there's somebody else who might benefit from hearing it as well. And why not share it with them? Until next time. Mm -hmm.